Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. You're listening to Bill Handel, on demand from KFI AM 640. Today, the part of Bill Handel will be played by not Bill Handel. I mean, it's Handel's show, so see the difference. And now, here's not Bill Handel. KFI AM 640, live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. This is the Bill Handel Show. I'm not Bill Handel. He is getting cataract surgery today. He should be back tomorrow. Wayne Resnick sitting in. We have Gary and Shannon coming up an hour from now with Swamp Watch. And Mixtape Monday, all the music news that you could ever want. And later tonight on Later with Mo Kelly, he's going to have Jackie Ray on for a weekend sports recap. It's all good listening here on KFI. Now, before we get into the latest banking crisis, there's some other stories we're watching for you at KFI. President Biden in SoCal San Diego today, big announcement. Australia is going to buy some nuclear-powered attack submarines that we make because they're trying to modernize their fleet. I think uh, what they're using now is that bell thing from uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. They want to upgrade. And then Biden's going to come up to Monterey Park tomorrow to talk about gun violence, interesting crime spree in Rancho Santa Margarita over the weekend. According to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, seven different restaurants were burglarized all in one night. Don't have any arrests yet. Don't know if maybe they have a suspect in mind. We'll keep an eye on that for you. And maybe the biggest news of the day, even bigger than everything, everywhere, all at once, winning all those awards at the Oscars, is the fact that you've got two bank failures happening in rapid succession. Silicon Valley Bank which was taken over by authorities in the second biggest bank failure in the history of the United States. And then you have Signature Bank was taken over by the uh, New York state regulators, although they did have branches here in Southern California. And that is the third biggest bank failure in the history of the United States. So that's that's not good. Now, number one, number one, 
you got to go back to 2008 when uh, the you know the beginning of that whole economic crisis washington mutual here's what happened okay washington mutual i'm going to give you i'm going to give you inflation adjusted numbers here okay because i think it's i think it's fairer to the recent banks washington mutual in 2008 failed and at the time it was uh, $307 billion in assets adjusted for inflation, $386 billion. Silicon Valley Bank, number two, $209 billion. Signature Bank, $118 billion. These are pretty big bank failures. But on the other hand, we're talking uh, less than, because Silicon Valley Bank, I think, was the 16th biggest bank in the country, but it only it represents less than 1% of the banking assets. So if you're looking at the entire swimming pool of banking, this is not catastrophic, but it's certainly not good either. Now, what happened with Silicon Valley Bank? We had uh, President Biden live speaking uh, early this morning, right at the start of the show. And he seemed to really point the fingers at the people who were running the bank. He made a big deal of saying that they've been fired and that there was going to be accountability. And I'm not saying he's wrong, but I'm saying that is certainly not the whole story. So one thing that happened is something that happened to all of us, and it's called a pandemic. And what happened specifically in banking, and to this bank in particular, is you had a situation where economic activity was depressed uh, during the pandemic, and people actually had money they were getting help from the government if they needed it or they weren't spending as much. And what happened is with Silicon Valley Bank is people put a lot of money into it. They started depositing money and they actually couldn't lend it all out. That's the normal model. You, uh, you take the money. We all know this from uh, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Your money's not here. It's in Fred's house. You take somebody's money, you lend it out, you make money from the loan, you maybe pay a little interest to the guy who deposited it. So they had all these deposits and they couldn't really do anything with it. So what they did is something that seems like a good, fair, safe idea. They put it in U.S. Treasury Secretary's super, super safe investment. But then came the inflation. Not their fault. And then came the rapid increase in the interest rates by the Fed. Not their fault, not the bank's fault. So guess what happens when interest rates go up? Generally speaking, bond prices go down. All of a sudden, their holdings in super safe treasury securities and bonds were worth way less through no fault of their own. But what happened then is, and they had to you know, announce it, and they sold some of those bonds and they took a $1.8 billion hit. And then when that became known, some venture capital firms said, hey, you know, you companies that we gave money to, tech companies, for example, and we gave you money. We think you better get your money out of that bank right now because we're investors in your company and God forbid we should lose any money. So that led to a run on the bank, and boom, now we're in the situation where the feds have taken over the bank. 
And uh, that's President Biden is talking about people who deposited money in that bank are going to get all their money back. And people who invested, and I think he was talking about these venture capital firms who invested in companies that now are going to be in big financial trouble because they can't get all their money, that uh, they're out of luck because that's capitalism and you made a risk, you, you took a risk, you made a gamble and you lost and that's how it works. So that's what's going on and that's how we got here. And one last thing quickly, they're saying everyone will get their money back even if it's over the $250,000 insurance amount. Probably, but not necessarily, over $250,000, you're going to get a receiver's certificate for the uninsured amount of your deposit, some of which they said they're going to pay back next week. They'll pay back the rest as they liquidate the bank's assets but if they can't get enough from liquidating the assets to pay everybody back in full, some people won't get all their money back. That's just what happens. And here we go again. So police science has been the bugaboo of innocent people for quite some time. Because there are a lot of things that pass for science that are used in policing that aren't as scientific as we may have been led to believe. And I want to make one thing clear here. This is not anti-police because police themselves are often the biggest uh, victims, if you will, when the science that they've been given to use fails them. And I'm bringing this up now because for a long time, we've all understood that lie detectors don't work. They're not reliable. They're not accurate. The thing where you sit down and they put the rubber belt around your chest and the thing on your finger and all of that, um, it's no good because it only measures if you're nervous. It doesn't measure the difference between lying and telling the truth. It measures the difference between being relaxed or being nervous, and I'm not aware, maybe with the exception of like a bachelorette party, where anybody's taking a lie detector test for fun and therefore is relaxed when they're taking it. And now um, they're, they're trying to rehabilitate the lie detector by using a new technology that they say is actually accurate and actually works, and, and we'll get into that in, in a second. But where did this thing even come from? And it's kind of an interesting story because it comes from a place you might not expect. UC Berkeley. All the way back in the 20s, where there was a string of thefts from College Hall. College Hall was uh, one of the dorms there at the time, and it was filled with young ladies and most of these young ladies came from wealthy families, and so they had some nice things. And somebody was going around stealing stuff, and it started with small stuff like underwear or books and things that you could maybe think you just misplaced it. So they didn't really want to call the cops at first, but then it got worse, and eventually very expensive things were getting stolen, like a diamond ring that was worth $400 at the time. That would be about six and a half thousand dollars today. So they had to call the police. And it just so happened that the police chief in Berkeley at the time was a guy named August Vollmer, who is, to his credit, I suppose, the first police chief in the country to to look at crime and think that maybe science could help fight crime. So he hired fingerprint people and handwriting uh, analyst people 
And he put together this thing called a morgue book. And it had pictures of, of corpses and it had pictures of car wrecks and it had pictures of weapons. And it was almost like an encyclopedia that he thought uh, future investigators could use by referring to this thing. He also put in kind of the, the first rudimentary radio system around Berkeley. It was a signaling system so cops could call each other for backup. And he's also the first police chief to give his officers vehicles. Started with bikes. There was motorcycles. Eventually they got cars. And he also started hiring cops out of the university, people with college educations to be cops. And one of those guys was a guy named John Larson. And uh, to make a long story there short, he invented the first lie detector machine. They called it the cardio-pneumo-psychograph. Now we call it a polygraph. And they used it in this case to try to figure out who was stealing all this stuff. And it worked. But I don't think it worked because the lie detector machine worked. I think it worked because they started grilling people, hooking them up to a machine, and the person who was guilty just couldn't take it and confessed. Now, almost right away, there was a reason to think that these lie detector tests weren't such a good idea, even for police, because there was a terrible, terrible murder that happened in San Francisco. And they hooked the guy up to a lie detector, and he passed. And then he was acquitted. And here's the thing. They knew, everybody knew at the time, cops, everybody they knew, and we know historically, everybody knows he did it. He did it. And he got away with it because the lie detector didn't work. We normally think of it not working in that it makes you look guilty when you're not guilty, but it can also work the other way, and it did. So fast forward to now, and what's happening is there are people who claim they have a new technology that can scan your eyeballs using a functional uh, MRI machine and that by detecting the different movement patterns of your eyeballs that they can tell if you're lying or not and police agencies are buying this stuff and critics are saying there's no evidence that it works any better than the old-fashioned lie detector machine but you know part of the problem is and i think police are a victim of this i don't i don't know that there's so much the perpetrators of it they're the victim of hucksters because it's big business if you can get police agencies to decide they want a piece of equipment you can make a ton of money and there is an incentive there to push something that doesn't necessarily do exactly what you say it does. And I'm hoping I'm hoping this new eye scan thing uh, doesn't have to go through the same cycle where for years and years it's treated with reverence and people's confessions uh, are, are used against them because of it. And people maybe even get convicted because of it until finally later we find out what we should have known all along, which is that it's actually no good. People, highly trained police officers are way better at this than these machines. One last thing, just because I think it's funny. Uh, the Baltimore Police Department for a time, this was when everybody believed lie detector machines worked. 
they, this is what they did. They got a Xerox machine, regular old Xerox machine. And they filled it with paper. The paper had been pre-printed to say either true or false. And they would load whatever paper they wanted into the Xerox machine. And then they would hook somebody, quote, hook somebody up to it and ask them questions and then just hit the print button and a piece of paper would come out and it would say true or false so that they could manipulate people um, to try to get them to confess. And that was not in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s. That was in all of our lifetimes that they were doing that. People have been entertained by people wearing the clothes of the opposite gender for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. I'm thinking specifically of during Shakespeare's time when it was quite common for uh, an actor to play a character of the, of the quote, opposite gender. But even going back to Roman times and Greek times, it was very common as a form of entertainment. And it was primarily uh, a man. By the way, in this whole discussion, I am going to use binary terms because it's the, it's the only way to talk about what's going on without tripping over yourself a million times. It would be a, a man dressing up as a woman primarily, although there were some instances where women would play the role of men to the delight of audiences uh, from all walks of life. Super rich people would laugh. Uh, uh, poor people would come and appreciate it. And at the same time, apparently people have been bothered by someone wearing the clothes of the gender that they supposedly are not. Because yes, right now the news cycle is full of stories about um, laws prohibiting drag, drag performances, going into restrooms dressed differently than your, than your birth gender or your quote assigned gender. And in the case of Tennessee, the first state to actually pass and have signed such a law, and it restricts drag. Now, here's the thing. Number one. There have been people in society who have been afraid and scared by this for a long time. In the 19th century in this country, in San Francisco, they passed what they called, they called the masquerade laws. And it was literally illegal to walk down the street. If you were a man and you were walk down the street dressed as a woman or the other way around, this was a crime. And usually what happens is those laws get repealed. From time to time, jurisdictions revisit their criminal codes and they often repeal outdated laws. You know, those games that you play about... Um, Funny laws that are still on the books, like it's illegal to peel an orange in a hotel room in Montana. Well, there are a lot of laws like that. And, and there were a ton of these laws on the books all over the place, and they were pretty much entirely repealed over time. And now they're back. So the ten here's the thing about the Tennessee law. The Tennessee law is both... Um, 
how do I want to say this? It is limited and careful as to the law, meaning I, I think it probably is constitutional, but it's also 100% pandering with no actual use. It will never be used. I guess I should say this. I don't want to say it'll never be used. No one, unless they purposefully want to, will ever be convicted of this law for the same reasons that it is constitutional. Here's what happened. So Tennessee, like some other states, got all, please forgive the, the wordplay, got all wigged out about drag. And they wrote this law. And the first law that they wrote basically said it's illegal to be in drag in public. And they were going to try to pass that law. Now, that's a law that is so unconstitutional, I can't even believe it. And apparently, at least some people in, uh, in Tennessee's legislature have some brains. And they said, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't pass this law because it'll be struck down immediately. It's ridiculous. This is a ridiculous law. So some people who have some understanding of the law as it exists now and the First Amendment said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tailor this law so it comports to First Amendment rulings. So here is what the law in Tennessee makes a crime. Things that were already a crime. Things that are, in fact, a crime everywhere in this country. Because what's illegal under the law in Tennessee now are performances that are obscene. It doesn't outlaw any old drag performance. It doesn't. It outlaws drag performances that are obscene. And obscene has a specific legal definition. And it's basically stuff. It's stuff that's supposed to get you horny but is so disgusting that an average person would be disgusted. And also, there's nothing redeeming about it in terms of social commentary or artistic expression or anything else. So it's supposed to get somebody horny, and it's totally disgusting, and there's not anything about it that's worthy. That's obscenity. It's not protected by the First Amendment. So they wrote the law to say, if you have a cabaret performance, and, and, and the law covers topless dancers, exotic dancers, and male or female impersonators, and that's where the, the going after drag comes in. And if they are doing a performance in public, or if they're doing a performance in a private place where a child could see, and it's obscene, then it's a crime. But it's a crime anyway to do an obscene performance. It doesn't matter if you're in drag or not. Obscenity is illegal anyway. So it has the effect of saying to the people of Tennessee who are all bummed out about drag, saying, look what we're doing. But in reality, the only person who ever can be convicted under this law is a person who says, I'm going to try to be as sexually or, or um, bodily, fluidly disgusting as possible 
for no other reason, for no point. I'm not making any point. I'm just going to do it. You basically have to try to be obscene. Nobody, nobody stumbles into obscenity by accident. That's not how it works. It's the bar is very, very, very high for something to be legally obscene. And it's the same high bar in this Tennessee law. So in a way, it's a whole bunch of nothing except for this thing. Why pass it if you know you're never going to get anybody? Because it creates a pretext to intimidate people and for law enforcement, if they're so inclined to go after people, whether or not it ultimately leads to a conviction. And we have a lot of laws like this, and they're called exclusionary laws. They're laws that are passed not to be enforced all the way through to a conviction, but to intimidate people and then for, for police to harass people. That's what this law is. All right, let's talk about the Oscars. Don't, please, don't snore. The ceremony was one of the most uh, uneventful ceremonies that I can remember in Oscar history. Jennifer Jones Lee, you beat me to the punch a few minutes ago by just coming right out and saying it was boring. <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot, but then I'll put myself on the same spot if that's okay. Sure. Did you watch any of it? Parts. I had it on in the background, but I admit it was in the other room. Okay. I was working in the other room. You may, if you want, ask me, or you don't have to. No. Did you watch any of it? I watched about 30 seconds of it. And that was enough? Yeah, because they were presenting an award. I don't remember which award. And it were the two presenters were standing there, and they were standing away, a way that people don't normally stand. You would never actually stand that way. <laughs> and they were speaking in very controlled tones, and introducing the nominees and on the stage. And I looked at the whole thing and it kind of looked like a painting, not a live thing. Happening. Oh, yeah. And I realized, I realized, oh, this whole thing is contrived. Yeah. And not interesting. It's not interesting to watch. It is interesting, depending who wins. Yeah. But to watch the exercise of awarding the awards is not interesting. This is why people are saying it was boring, because it only was the thing it is, which is people get up, read nominee, make, make, a, make a little statement. Maybe it's funny. Maybe it's serious. Read the nominees. Announce the winner. The winner gets up. Thanks, people. Maybe gets emotional. That's all it ever is right. at its core. The reasons the Oscars have been interesting to watch is if there's a really rip-snorting opening number. Jimmy Kimmel fake parachuting in is not that interesting. Blah. Or if there's scandal, or if there's a mistake, or if there's a streaker, like the year the guy ran naked across the stage when D David Niven was on the stage. No, that's just or, good, clean fun. You know, so so no, I, I saw it and I instantly knew there was no reason to watch it. Yeah. To talk about it, to say who do you want to win and that stuff. And then the next day to talk about who won and everything, that's different. 
But to actually watch for multiple hours, the process of it is not for me. Um, they're gonna they're gonna have to really tart it up if they want me to watch it again. And you know what's so funny is I felt like they did try and you know zazz it up a little bit because they put a lot of musical numbers into it. <laughs> but then that was it, they were boring musical numbers in the sense of I think if you want a musical number in an award show, you want something Grammyfied. You know, you want it yeah. boom boom glitz glamour whatever. And this was not that. No. So here's the one area, though, where there's some controversy. Well, there's two. One of them is Jamie Lee Curtis saying basically that why we shouldn't have gendered categories. Right. Because that way there can be more opportunities. Right. Here's the thing, though, and I don't know if she knows this. Not necessarily. Some award shows have done away with the gendered categories. And it has not necessarily led to more inclusivity. The Brit Awards got, got rid of their um, gendered categories. They merged the male and female artist categories. Right. And then this year, everybody was mad because no women were nominated. I see. So it because doesn't matter. Have a separate women's category. Then so you would at least have women whoever. nominated. Yeah, they nominated whoever they wanted, if you want to say, regardless of, of gender, and it was all men. So it won't necessarily get you what you want right. simply by, by, by collapsing the categories together. And then the other thing is, and I don't know, did you notice when they did the in memoriam that there were people missing? I did, but only later because I saw I so I went and I. I, I kind of Monday morning quarterbacked it. So it was after everybody was already saying, oh, my gosh, did you see that these people weren't in it? Right. And uh, I think it's interesting. Paul Sorvino. Now, that's big. Left out. That guy had a long, long career. Uh, and there's no reason. There's no scandal about it. No. Tony Sirico of Polly Walnuts. Right. Not there. Uh, this young lady who died so tragically young, Charlie Dean, who was in Triangle of Sadness, which was nominated for Best Picture, that film, not in there. Anne Heche, not in there. Yeah, that's a big one, too. Sasheen Littlefeather, not in there. Wow. Even though they made a huge deal of throwing a big thing to honor her. Right before she not, died. Right. Right. And then didn't even include her in the thing. So that's about the only controversy that uh, happened at the Oscars. And uh, maybe they'll come out and say why those people weren't there. I don't know. All right, Jen. Well, I'm glad you and I were on the same page about that. Absolutely. It was fun. All right. Today was yeah. fun. All right. See you tomorrow. See you and tomorrow. Bill is back. Gary and Shannon are coming up right now. This is KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app. You've been listening to the Bill Handel Show. Catch my show Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. and anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. 